0: Greetings citizen. Welcome to the show and thank you for listening. For more of the art of war gaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email Art of Wargaming Podcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. you to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Network. The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Earverm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today we're going to be talking about some more of these Napoleonic maxims, edging yet even closer to the end of this book and our inevitable return to Clausewitz's On War. But before we get into that, I've been trying to have more games recently. I think it was our last episode that I talked about a game with Toto. I wasn't able to get an interview in with my last opponent, a good friend of mine named Zane. And he is a new player. He has not been playing very long at all. Uh, Bought one of my armies from me, actually. My um, uh, Chaos Space Marines. So I'm very familiar with a lot of the units and a lot of the the tactics and strategies that he's going to employ. And meanwhile, I'm here using Knights. Uh, And for instance, our last game that we had, him and I, uh, just, just yesterday, was my Imperial Knights versus his... Chaos Space Marines. He was playing them as Black Legion, but that doesn't matter at this point in in history because the the Codex hasn't come out yet, and the differences between the Chaos Space Marines do not exist yet. But he likes Black Legion. He painted the Black Legion, so they're Black Legion. I'm going to let you all sit there for a second and guess in your head when he conceded at the end of turn three what the score was and how many of my models he removed from the board. Okay, you got numbers in your head. You got you got visualization. Was that visualization thirty-five to ten, and was the number you were thinking of zero? Because yes, I got zero dudes taken off the board during this particular fight. It was down to a lot of dice, of course, like that. Of anytime you're dealing with a a game like 40k, what uses dice that luck is going to play a particular role. But another huge part of it, and this is why I wanted to share this. ...was my management of the lanes of fire. He set up his Havocs, which are very dangerous against... ...especially my armagers, by the way... ...in such a way that if I moved very aggressively... ...I would expose myself to all three. But knowing this, taking this into account... ...I moved in such a way that any one of my units... ...would only be exposed to a maximum of one of his Havoc squads. So I played defensively for nights... But I managed to kind of kind of weasel my way forward, not presenting significant targets of opportunity where he could bring a bunch of that weaponry to bear against a single thing. I had a lot of dudes who took damage. Like, there was one guy who was down to three wounds. He was limping. But that was because he only got hit by one Havoc Squad rather than two working in concert. And so he was able to withdraw before more damage was inflicted. And so this management of lanes of fire, this management of... of kind of vulnerability is what kept my army intact almost entirely like I said I lost wounds but I didn't lose a single model and that was more due to my positioning than to his gameplay because he had honestly had pretty good positions for his Havocs they had great you know uh, overlapping fields of fire they had the ability to kind of cover the field in my main ways of approach and so I had to whittle them down in different ways in order to uh, be able to bring my main army forward and so that that matters. Placement. Placement and movement matter. Almost as much as the actual damage being done. So that was a satisfying victory, if a bit overwhelming. And I will be, of course, uh, moving on to doing some other ones. And uh, I've got actually got a game with Toto coming up here pretty quick, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, and there's a huge difference. I guess the, one of the first times i played the Imperial Knights since I got my Chaos Knights... And the difference between playing them is is rather stark. And you'd think looking at them being like, oh, they're just both stompy boys, like mechanical things, they can't be that different. Well, I mean, one way you're right. You know, you you use a very similar tactic for trying to keep your big ones safe and having your small ones be kind of a bubble. Uh, Of course, using the small ones as objective grabbers, while the big ones are uh, more of a, a combat thing. Or just holding objectives, not necessarily grabbing them, but definitely holding them if they're longer range, which my Crusader does in my Imperial Knights. Um, and ranged for ranged, uh, the Imperial Knights have it superior. They have a superior makeup for that just because of the bonuses that they get for their models. And that's the big one. The bonuses for Imperial Knights tend to favor a bit more of a balanced play style, uh, leaning more even towards toward ranged stuff, rather than the Chaos Knights, which is mostly a melee-based uh, playstyle. Most of their special abilities have to do with charges or fighting or other or such things as that. And of course, their nastiest, nastiest units are usually their pure fighting ones. And so, in terms of playstyle, they are very much different. One of them is a giant mech shooting you to bit, bits with gigantic weapons from across the field, and the other one is a giant mech beating you to death with gigantic weapons from right in your face. So, they might have slightly different play styles, but the end result is the same. Overwhelming firepower, just like Napoleon would like it. And I'm looking outside right now, and I see the season changes occurring actively. Reminded, of course, of the cessation of hostilities that would be taking place in most fields of war throughout most of history. And even now, as things are slowing down in the fields of war that we have, uh, where, it, where it matters, which is to say outside of the equatorial regions... One of the upsides and downsides of an equatorial region is that the difference between summer and winter can be somewhat negligible, meaning that a campaign can be carried on all the time, whereas those of us near the poles have to be concerned with what's going on with the weather, and winter can be a huge hindrance. Uh, The war in the Ukraine, for instance, is a great example. It's starting to wind down a little bit. They're starting to find their, their winter places, because if you recall last winter, not a whole lot of terrain changed hands. And that's, I mean, that's that's what happens during winter. People hunker down. People try to, um, you know, make sure that they're they're not wasting resources in the cold. So, I know that uh, it's kind of the same thing for for our sort of fighting. Outdoor fighting becomes untenable. Uh, with Belagarth, it's because the colder it gets, the more dangerous our weapons become, because the foam which keeps them still hurting but not hurting you becomes more solid. And I have absolutely busted a wrist uh, fighting during colder months where I would not have done so during the warmer months and have uh, you know sustained other injuries, not, not just from the impact of the weapons, but in terms of being able to find proper footholds. So slipping headshots are far more common in the winter because the ground is slippery, of course. Um, and, uh, of course, it's just more uncomfortable out there in terms of exposure to the cold and exposure... Of the lungs and, and everything along those lines, I've got pneumonia. Fighting in the winter before, uh, so yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of reasons to to, to secede it. And so as we're looking back, I want you to to bring to mind, even into yourself, what was good about this season, what went really well for you. What what sort of training or what sort of action really brought forth the most lessons that you can take forward. Just kind of reflect on that for a little bit. I mean, not very long because we need to move on, but <laughs> it's worth considering. I look back at this particular season and I see the, the admittance of a particular new need of fighting. As, as we've talked about, I'm getting older. Fighters get older, which is an unfortunate thing, but I suppose it's better than staying young. And so I'm, I'm having to transition a little bit from being a pure melee fighter to also doing archery. And this, is, this can be a hard thing especially for somebody who might have a little bit of ego set in their ability to fight melee and it's not that i can't fight melee it's just that there's many many days and many many times that it would benefit me to be fighting exclusively with a bow and so the transition for that for me marking that transition thinking the transition is worthwhile and following through with it without any sort of you know internal issues that's kind of what i got from this last season the admittance of where i'm at physically and where i'm most effective because can i still be in the melee yeah i can but if i'm not as effective doing melee as i am doing archery then i'm wasting my own potential on the field so that's been that's been my lesson this summer is learning how how best to serve myself and my team on the field and yours yours is probably going to be different or maybe the same but yeah think about it nonetheless But... That's enough jaw jacking on that sort of thing. I think it's time for us to jump right back in with our Napoleonic Maxims. All right, let's just jump right in to our next you know, set of military Maxims for Napoleon. I know that I've probably said we're near to the end of this book about 10,000 times at this point, I feel like a, uh, a Montanan parent who continues to say, we're nearly there to their child who inquires as to whether or not they are there yet. And I know that at least where I'm from, that can mean five minutes away or up to like 40 minutes away. And for those of you who have never driven in a Midwestern state or in Montana, uh, specifically, we have about two hours between each significant city minimum minimum distance and so that gives us a different concept of time different concept of distance than most other folks for instance you may have just heard me uh, measure distance in terms of time that's a very common thing for you know somebody from from Montana to do because (laughs) uh, that's an easier thing to say now that's of course variable the amount of miles between one place or another or kilometers uh, between one place or another is not variable that's just kind of set in stone but uh you know we we, we usually measure in time which uh, like mm-hmm. i said if i was driving someplace it would take longer than say my cousin who has routinely gotten speeding tickets so even there, there is a little bit of a variable thing but it's 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 rough it's rough um but we're nearly there we are nearly there so let's let's get back into this Maxim 103, when they are thoroughly understood, field fortifications are always useful and never injurious. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense that if we're going to build any sort of fortifications in our field, fortifications for our army, that we want to do so in such a way that disrupts and is injurious, of course, to our opponent and not so much to ourselves. I think that's pretty straightforward. But, as he, he kind of suggests here, when thoroughly understood. Now, those those of us who have read Miyamoto Musashi, I think I've brought him up before, um, will know that you know, many times throughout his book, he mentions things like, you, you need practice to understand this. That's kind of the the summary that he gives. He'll talk about a, a strike, or he'll talk about a certain concept, and then he'll say, you need practice, you need time you, know, meditating, you need time with this concept before you can truly understand it. And this is very much the same. You know, it's one of those things that kind of seems uh, easy in the mind, but it really takes practice to do very well. And, you know, At this time, of course, he's talking about using uh, trench works and palisades and, and various, the way of doing things, excuse me, uh, back, back in this particular time. Now, one of the things that we can include in this from a couple of centuries later is landmines. You know landmines are extremely popular, unfortunately. Uh, the problem with a landmine is that it st- sticks around we've We've seen this in places where there have been conflicts with a lot of landmines and then you have kids who are picking them up and playing with them and having issues but that's that's another thing entirely, but you know the placing of landmines, obviously you want to do it in such a way that your opponent Uh, could potentially run across them, but your own people won't. It doesn't do us much good. That's that's a waste of money. Uh, Not just the landmine, but whoever injures it, too. Because training's expensive. I mean, that's... Especially if you're dealing with what we would call professional armies these days. We don't really have conscript armies anymore. What we have is professional armies. And so each of our soldiers, whether they be Chinese or American or Russian or British or French, most of the soldiers that you're going to see in the world today are expensive. They were expensive to train. They were expensive to arm. They were expensive to feed. They are expensive to keep. Uh, It's not a cheap thing, keeping a fighting force. And so we want them to be able to move effectively. And, you know, again, uh, Napoleon didn't necessarily intend this particular interpretation, but we want them to not be blown up as well, or injurious. He does say injurious here. It's another one of those things. Kind of like the strikes of Miyamoto Musashi, kind of like siege warfare. It might seem easy, but there's there's definitely an art form to it that has to be practiced by somebody who, who understands what's going on. So, one o four, An army can march anywhere at any time of the year, wherever two men can place their feet. This is a uh, <laughs> foreshadowing, of course, uh, because in his hubris, Napoleon is ignored on occasion, certain rules of warfare, one of which historically has been uh, retiring one's army during the winter. You know, and, and again, particularly at this time, that was important even nowadays. Like, uh, at the moment, of course, the Ukraine uh, war is still going on, for, for those of you kind of listening by, minute by minute. And even there, in the year 2023, you have a cessation of... of uh, fighting not complete cessation of course but a massive down downtick of fighting when winter rolls around it's just what happens and so this idea where anywhere you can place your feet well you need to be worried about where those feet are and we have to remember that when it comes to winter napoleon was famously turned away by a russian winter and so yes an army can march anywhere at any time wherever Men can plant two feet. But that doesn't mean they're going to be an effective fighting force or that it will be healthy for the army to go there. You can march into Mordor, but why? Why would you? Um, so, yeah, this this is one of those funny ones, I think, where his life and his history kind of contradict this one a little bit. or Or not necessarily, not contradict, but when he follows through on it, it's not necessarily a maxim to follow. Now... Granted, it is to tell you that, hey, wherever you need to go, you can get there if you've got the ability to get there. You know, that's, that's one thing, but there's a lot of daring in Napoleon's maxims that is later proven to be kind of bravado. I know we hail him as one of the greatest generals of history, and in many ways he was, but he also was proverbially hoisted by his own petard, you know, so there is that. 105. Conditions of the ground should not alone decide the organization for combat, which should be determined from consideration of all circumstances. It is easy for us, having studied things like ground and and other things about terrain, to think that that is an end-all-be-all. That um, whether or not one has a good defensive position, whether or not one has... um, An Open area for their cavalry as opposed to a closed area for their for their troops You know, there's there's a lot of things a lot of things that we have discussed about terrain and about ground on this particular show and Napoleon cautions us He says don't make decisions solely based on them There are other things to consider. There are other angles to consider here. He was always looking for the way to kind of beat the odds you know and when it came to upsetting ground he was one of the ones that was good at it, him. And then of course we think about Frederick. You know, Frederick the Great, he was also extremely good at upsetting the norm, upsetting the, the, the rules of warfare because he knew them well enough to break them. And that's what Napoleon's referring to again here. And and to his generals who were also experienced generals, experienced fighters. So of course they're looking at this from more than just an academic or more than just a a rudimentary level of understanding but also moving on to a more specific form of understanding uh, that, that comes with that experience, as we've talked about. It comes with the ability to, to look back at one's mistakes, one's learnings, and look at the places where the rules can be broken. And so, again, conditions of the ground should not alone decide the organization for combat. You know, They should be determined to uh, consideration of all circumstances. There are, there are a lot of things to consider when it comes to organization for combat. Our combat. Yeah, there's 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 things that should be uh, talked about, and there's things that should. Yeah. One of six, flank marches should be avoided, and when they must be undertaken, they should be as short as possible and made with the greatest speed. You'll notice that when we talk about Napoleonic tactics, flanking is not the most um, important thing. In his particular form of warfare, that overwhelming power we've talked about, right? That that uh, that overwhelming strike against one area that kind of breaks the opponent up and can be followed through with really aggressive action—that is Napoleonic tactics to a T. You know, flanking is something that, and even and even at this time, like because cavalry was so fragile in many ways, and they would have been the flankers opposed to like infantry. You know, it, it, it would have presented an issue. But, you know, the same um, like tactics that were, that were kind of used here were used in other conflicts, like the American Civil War, where flanking was used to a very high degree. And this, of course, is also based on ground. You look at the American South, and there is a lot more obscuration, as a general rule, than there is in most places in Europe. Now, I mean, of course, there was a massive forest across Europe at one point, but it was logged to, um, well... Not really there anymore as much. Um, So I bet you have a lot more open country in Europe. You have a lot more uh, areas where you could see a flank march coming from a mile away and it may not be as effective. And even though he was working in areas like what Frederick was, you know, Frederick didn't have that overwhelming firepower, so he didn't use an overwhelming tactic. He used flanking, uh, local numeric superiority, to make what he had count. Napoleon didn't want to do that. He didn't need to do that. He could just do a, an amazingly powerful assault that would accomplish what he was looking for. But this is something that it does depend. There's a lot of things that depend on whether or not you know we should be flanking, but the idea that it should be short, that that I absolutely agree with. It is entirely too common for me to see somebody either in intellectual or physical wargaming who thinks it's a great idea to go way, 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 way out. When they're flanking I used to be that guy by the way I'm not I'm not criticizing that guy overly because I am that guy I've done the same thing and of course you do so thinking well I'm going to be out here I'm going to be outside of the opponent's notice I'm going to you know get this wide wrap and then by the time I come back nobody will know that I'm out here and I can get some some good back kills that'll be great that's the theory you know that's that's what one's thinking when they do that but that is not how it works out the number of times that I arrived back at the battle to find that my team had been slain and now I had the entire enemy team to take on by my onesie that happened quite quite a lot or that you know there was a part of the action that I could have really been used for even the flanking like the flanking really could have been useful if I had been closer if I had actually been near the action and so I do like that particular piece of advice like not that the flanking should be avoided but then when undertaken, it should be done in a efficient and the smallest possible way as possible. Because again, we're, we're looking at economy of motion, right? Every single thing we do needs to be effective and in the most effective sort of way. So flanking is best done in, an, in a way where it can actually make a difference in the fight and, and be supported. I mean, that's the other thing. Remember I was talking out about being out there all by my onesie, you know, I, was, I was an easy target as well for somebody with more experience or somebody or, or two people for instance like not just the one but if two people come at come at you and they know what they're doing and you don't because you're a kid well that's that's an issue for sure but but yeah so i'm i'm not in agreement with this one either i think that flanking is a great idea because uh, turning your opponent's line is always a great idea but on the same idea i do agree with his idea or his um his, his point that it should be as short as possible and made with the greatest speed. You know we're not, we're not looking to have part of our army disengaged because, again, that, that kind of goes against Napoleonic Tactics where he's saying you need to be using everything you've got toward the effort. We need to be pointing all of our guns. We need to be putting all of our men towards the, the battle, the combat, getting through it and, and wiping the opponent out. And so with wide flanking maneuvers, you are taking part of the army away from the rest of it taking away part of that power and putting it somewhere else. And of course he would disagree with that. <laughs> of course he wouldn't like that very much. Um, so that, But that brings up the point of making sure that it's supported. Making sure any flanking move is supported and, conversely, that the flanking move itself supports the rest of the the, the, the force that's going on. Otherwise, it is a useless endeavor and can waste time and or resources doing it. 107 nothing can be designed better to disorganize and destroy an army than pillage this one because i like to mention the american civil war is a cold echoing of sherman's march to the sea this is an action that is of course viewed differently in what part of the united states you are from and of and of course the the culture that who you are talking to is from for instance in the north this was seen as one of the great tactical moves, great strategic moves of the American Civil War. Uh, the thing that really finally brought the South to its knees in terms of logistics, just pure logistics. Sherman's March to the Sea. And for those of you unfamiliar, um, after the cap- the capture of a very important port city, which made it difficult for uh, the, the Vicksburg, by the way, um, that made it difficult for, of course, ships to be transporting things for the, for the South, the... American General Sherman, underneath the uh, General of the Army, Grant, marched across the South and basically just destroyed everything in their path. They destroyed uh, plantations, they ripped up rail lines, um, you know, of course they shouldn't have harassed the civilian populace, but they absolutely did, um, you know, it was, it was something that in terms of strate- strategy was fantastic. Now if you talk to Southerners, uh, you're going to get a different interpretation. Of this particular, I mean, of course, the events are still the same, but Sherman is painted far more as a villain. That is not a a good name to mention in many parts of the South, especially in places where they still uh, take this stuff very seriously. And so, you know, again, it's one of those things, it depends on what side you're on. But from what, again, what he's saying here, nothing can be designed better to disorganize and destroy an army than pillage. I mean, it's absolutely true. You know, Sherman marched across, and and he had very little resistance because the armies of the Confederacy were employed elsewhere. You know, the Army of Northern Virginia was up there fighting the Army of the Potomac, um, and then you had the, you know, a bunch of smaller armies that were scattered across the South and the West that were all taking parts in actions as well. And so this march that Sherman had was not unimpeded, but was did not face the resistance that it could have. And so it was able to march right across to Atlanta and and burn everything in its wake, dealing massive logistical damage to the South. And honestly, being a big part of the reason that their war effort was crippled. Because those of you who are familiar with American military history will know that the South, in the the early parts of the Civil War, ran circles around the North. Just... (laughs) Just delightfully so. Their tactics were so outdated, and and General Lee and his staff were all very experienced generals who who were playing by a totally different rule book. and and it's it's awesome to see, but it, it came to an end because a lot of that it, no an army marches on its stomach. Another Napoleonic maxim: an army marches on its stomach, and if you don't have food, or if you do have food and you have no trains to get it there. No way to transport ammunition no way to transport reserves no way to transport you know it's it was devastating for for a war that was one of the first ones fought with railroad which made it significant because you could have large amounts of men and material that could be moved vast distances very quickly and that made a far more dynamic war than we had seen in the past that was a huge hindrance to to suddenly not have that capability that's a huge hindrance and so you know what when Napoleon's saying here is absolutely correct you know if we're, if we're going after an army if we're going after the throat unfortunately the best way to do it is to to pillage what your army what your opponent needs now ethically speaking this often means not just going after military targets but civilian targets as well and that brings up a lot of questions in terms of ethics but if we're talking about simply war gaming um, I know, I know that I've absolutely done this and you, you, sit there and try to reduce an army either through siege or you try to do it through, again, that disruption of, of uh, communications, disruption of logistics. It's effective. It is effective. 108. Praise from enemies is suspicious. It cannot flatter an honorable ban unless it is given after the cessation of hostilities. Oh yes, the time-honored tradition of trying to throw your opponent off their kilter by being entirely too polite and or praiseworthy. I haven't done this on, on purpose necessarily, but I have noticed it in things like when I play 40k. If I'm going against somebody and suddenly I start praising what they're doing, praising their actions, praising their tactics, sometimes it can lead them to a false sense of security where they think, oh yes, I've got this in the bag. My opponent has just acknowledged how good my tactics are or how nice my army looks or how well I, I represented myself in a, in a particular conflict or in a particular little fight. And that can go to somebody's head. And of, of course, we've talked about the dangers of that before. Um, you know, people people getting inside your head and the idea of having low morale is something we've discussed in, in large amounts. But hubris hubris and flattery that comes from flattery that's something else entirely and needs to be watched because it can also be an indicator of some sort of treachery it can be an indicator of of this being a distraction being like oh yes I love your upfront strategy your ability to to come at me head on is fantastic it's a very good strategy well of course I would tell you that if I wanted you to do it so that I could plank you or so that I could do some other tricksy sort of thing based on the fact that you are now going to do that thinking, oh, yes, of course, of course my enemy will will, will fall to this because they, <laughs> they admire it. So, Napoleon gives great advice right here, which is to say that the only praise that one should really listen to from one's enemy is after the fight is done. After the cessation of hostilities, that is where, and that's overall hostilities. The game is over, not just the campaign, not just the individual fight or, or a little combat. We're talking the game, the strategy, the war is over. Then, then take your opponent's words to heart. Then look at their, their compliments and say, okay, you know this this works out for me. But until then, it's a, it can be a tactic. The tactic of getting inside your head because blowing up the ego to a point in which it causes error, is almost as effective as reducing the ego to such a point that it causes inaction. 109. Prisoners of war do not belong to the power for which they have fought. They all are under the safeguard of honor and generosity of the nation that has disarmed them. This is a rare moment of humanitarianism within an otherwise brutal subject. Often throughout history, prisoners of war have not been treated well. They've either been tortured or, uh, starved or, 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 held in, in horrible conditions, executed, pressed into service, uh, have their limbs, heads, or other bits chopped off to be used as some sort of morale de- reducing <laughs> siege projectile or something along those lines. Uh, so, so, in, I mean, the American Revolutionary War, it was absolutely gross conditions. American Civil War, absolutely gross conditions. But what Napoleon's saying here is that they all depend on the honor and generosity of the nation that has disarmed them. And I believe that the um, what he's leaning towards here by by talking about honor and generosity is that a nation can be judged on how it treats these, these POWs. Because, yes, they had... They had violence in their hearts at one point against the the nation that they are imprisoned by. But kind of like anything else, they are now at the mercy of the nation they were imprisoned by. What is the nature of that nation? Is that nation or is that force vindictive and cruel? Are they unfair and unscrupulous? Or do they have honor and generosity? And so I, I'm kind of on the... On the same fence as him, because the problem with vicious treatment of prisoners is that after the cessation of hostilities, after they return to their, to their country of origin or to their side, they're going to bear a grudge. And a soldier with a grudge is far more likely to re-enter the field of battle than one who doesn't necessarily have one. One who says, you know, again, I'm, you know, Napoleon isn't saying put up a four-star hotel for your, for your POWs, but proper treatment. Proper treatment can go a long way, and it can reduce the viciousness of the enemy. Think about how the Americans reacted to the treatment of some of their POWs during the Vietnam War. Not well. Not well. That, that, that war was just absolute cruelty from one side to the other. But that was one of the things that really set the Americans off, was treatment to POWs. Not to say that they were much better, mind you, but from what I've read, that was a huge issue. And it made the rest of the army army far more cruel in their enacting of their of their policies, so this can be very important because if I'm looking at my opponent and I say, "Oh, you're treating my people well, well then I'm more inclined to treat your people well and well, that's good all around again, a war is not a humane thing by any means, but that doesn't mean that we have to be cruel as a result uh, yeah, so I mean in terms of war gaming not necessarily as important but in terms of world politics and, and world uh, action i think this is an important concept to remember One ten. conquered provinces should be maintained in obedience to the conquerors by moral means such as responsibility of local governments and the method of organization and administration hostages are among the most powerful means but to be effective they should be many and chosen from the preponderant elements, from the people, and the people must be convinced that immediate death of the hostages will follow the violation of their pledges. This is kind of the opposite idea. Napoleon has gone to the other side of the moral spectrum, and instead of. because well, POWs and hostages are a little bit different. POWs, of course, are, are people who may have fought in a battle, or at least participated in it. And were captured afterwards. Hostages are taken when an area or when a, you know, a province is is taken over, and the hostages they're talking about are ones that, unfortunately, are ones that quote unquote matter. We're talking about royalty. We're talking about high-ranking generals. We're talking about uh, administration, like you know governors uh, and such things. We're talking about people who quote unquote matter. Uh, I wouldn't. In this particular case I would not be taken hostage I would not be nearly valuable enough To be a hostage Napoleon himself, sure sure. But, and so what we're talking about here Are people who, who would matter In terms of just like Cold analysis of the situation And for it to be effective Of course, the enemy needs to think That it's real You know, if you're sitting there and you're like I'm going to kill these hostages or I'm going to, you know, and, and, and you know, that's your main threat against the enemy, but they don't think you're going to do it because you're a softy or, or because you've had hostages before and the terms were violated and you didn't really do anything. The point of taking hostages is so that you are taken seriously. And if your opponent does not think that you're serious, then the having of those hostages doesn't really matter. And at that point, you or I... As a commander am faced with the ethical dilemma of what to do with said hostages, do we follow through and execute them, potentially widening the conflict or, or breeding resentment in our opponent that can be used as a as a recruiting or a morale tool, or are we lenient and probably shouldn't have taken hostages in the first place quite frankly, I don't know I don't know this is another one of those things that's a massive massive moral gray area when it comes to the conduct of war which is already itself a messy and cruel business you know hostages are never we're talking about innocent people usually and so this is this is up to the individual you know interpretation and there's not a whole lot of way to do this i know with certain forms of rp like if you're dealing with larp that is far more uh, of course role play based than what i've ever done i'm sure that the taking of hostages occurs there but um you know in we just sort of kill our opponents. There's not a whole lot else besides that. Well, you know what? I suppose there has been hostages taken. I had a piece of, of garb one time that was stolen from me. And, uh, I mean, this is all very playful. It wasn't actually stolen. Cops weren't involved or anything like that. But it was stolen from me and used as a point of leverage to get me to swear an oath of fealty. Which I still hold to this day. Lilith. I still hold my oath of fealty to you. But a little stuff like that. And again, so it doesn't even necessarily need to be a person. I mean, that's what he's mentioning here, is of course the, the hostages, they're, you know, they're chosen from the people there, and the, the, of course we're talking about death. But hostages can also be material means. You know, it can be something that our opponent wants. So uh, a place of significant worship would also count for this. Like let's say we take a city and we take a, there's a significant place of worship there, and we say, hey, you need to take us seriously, otherwise we're going to start tearing down brick and mortar That's going to get somebody's attention. That get my attention. You know, or or you know, a particular mine or like or or other sort of resource. Like there's a lot of things that one can take hostage, besides just people. But again, it needs to be done with the uh, with the the thought and the seriousness that your opponent will believe that you could do it, that you will do it. So follow through is important. All right, we are painfully close to the end of this, my friends, but I believe that we should probably save the rest of it for next time. So, uh, this is where we are going to, to end it for today. And now we have a real treat for you all today, because uh, you may remember... About a year ago, I would reckon, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Uh, I had some good friends of mine on the show, Desi and Zulu, and good for you, good for me. Here they are back. Guys, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, We're thanks. so excited to be back.
0: Thank you for having us again. No, it's, it's lovely to have you in studio, if even for a couple of seconds, and to be able to kind of pick your brains about what's going on out there in the East, because it is absolutely a little bit different than what happens here in the West. We've you know, talked about the, uh, the, the Great Grass Sea. It exists between our, <laughs> our, our two worlds, so uh, let's let's talk about it. What's the what's the meta transitions going on out there? Your your considerations.
2: Uh, so right now, there's actually been a huge rise in red fighting over the last few years. Um, basically, since everything's come back from COVID, there has been a massive rise in red fighting and just pole fighting in general. Mm. Um, the red fighting, like it, it's just it's spreading like crazy. Um, even this last Armageddon, we had a large group of fighters from like South Carolina and Florida come up north and just completely rock the field with just reds.
0: What is it with these Southerners? We have the same thing here in the West, where like this phenomena kind of started out of Southern California, where it was like we're gonna take reds everywhere and get really good with it too. People who primary red. So new for me when I was younger.
1: Yeah, so there's a chapter of Blade Masters that I think originates kind of in the South, and those are, I mean, of course the the top tier Red Fighters.
2: Yeah, the the Blade Masters, most of them actually exist in the Southeast around that South Carolina, Florida area. There's a few of them like farther up north, like uh, Dak and Avias. Um, Dak is in Illinois, Avias is in Michigan, and they're really the ones that are like spearheading the big movement with red fighting because for a long time people always kind of like look down on red fighting a little bit like it was a subpar fighting style that you know you you just don't take that seriously but then they show up and they're like hey we've got the skill to take on just about any fighter and all we've got is a red sword
0: right i mean i i can't throw shade at it i'm a part of it too now i'm doing it because it's better on my joints and my back i I'm not, I didn't do it to join the new sensation that's sweeping the nation, (laughs) but uh, I I completely understand it. It's a, it's an awesome style, very dynamic style as opposed to the sword and board, which has been the meta for the longest time uh, because it was the most secure. It was the most, um, accessible, accessible, uh, uh, adaptable, like all that sort of thing. Um, and like you said, reds were kind of not a huge, a huge thing for a while, but now they've kind of come back. And that's—I mean—that's true of all military history, though all military science. You know, you have you have cavalry that's on top, and then infantry that's on top, and then artillery that's on top, and you just kind of have that rotation between things. Um, I am starting to see a little bit of a rise in archery as a result, too, though.
1: Yeah, of course, and I mean it's all about balance. Um, before we go into, you know, I'm so passionate about archery, so I'm excited to talk about it. Um, we talked a little bit about industrialization and how that really changes aspects of war and i think really that's what's happening with this red phenomenon like we're seeing a lot of innovation in terms of uh foam smithing so now it's more accessible there um they yeah costs.
2: the materials are just it, it's so easy to get your hands on high quality materials mm-hmm. like you can i i know a few websites off the top of my head where you can go drop 50 bucks and you've got an eight foot hollow carbon core Mm -hmm. that you don't have to cut down to make a red sword on and you actually find yourself scrambling to add weight just to get the thing to pass Mm. and just that kind of material becoming easier to work with more accessible with you know the rise of the internet Mm -hmm. getting better it it's just led the way to better tech sure
1: and I think the community as well as a whole is kind of shifting in a different direction um, so that we're a little bit more accessible and inclusive and um, supportive of each other in our desires and fighting styles and implementation of new technology.
0: Sure. No, I, and I, I love that. I love the, like you say, the accessibility. I, for the longest time, Red Building was a precision art. You know, mm-hmm. it was something that to get the balance correctly, to get the weight correctly, to make sure that the materials were of a proper quality. It was. It was something that you had to go to. I, I've been spoiled my whole life by having excellent redsmiths, <laughs> <laughs> like Zulu. To, you guys didn't see me just gesture at him, so I probably should tell you that I did. Um, like like Zulu, who made me my very first awesome red sword, if I do re- recall, my Cladel Ruth. Um,
2: yep. Yeah, we made that in a, in my apartment. Oh man, I can't even remember how long ago. Forever ago. ago. <laughs>
0: But well, yeah, so I'm I'm absolutely you know a huge fan of it too, and that like you say, the accessibility makes it a lot a lot better as well. So it, it, it leads to a level of dynamism again that we've been kind of we we've settled into this this line kind of uh, World War early World War One esque like we're just gonna have a line battle of attrition between two sides of shields and some pushing and some shoving, and then eventually there'll be a breakthrough and you know it's a uh, but now it's like all right, let's Let's bring the tanks. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think that same accessibility is why we're seeing, of course, the increase in archers, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, we have to balance. We've got to get those pole fighters and spears out of the way somehow. But <laughs> um, just the amount of truly supporting community that we see out there that allows our newer, newer Bellagarth members to have access to high tech bows. And we're not using fiberglass. Uh, PVC little rinky dinks anymore for the most part, um, which we all we all start somewhere, right? So you see you see a PVC every now and again, and you love it because you love the tenacity of getting out onto the field and arching no matter what you've got. Um, but now you're you're seeing just a lot of really good bows coming out and um, a lot of new archers.
0: And some of that, like you were talking about, is from this great migration. That we were speaking of earlier, this influx that we're getting from. I think I had talked earlier about this. Um, I know, I, I think it was at least six months ago at this point that we were talking about the collapse of Dagger here and kind of the, the internal issues, because again, Auschwitz yeah. is a political writer as well. Yeah. So the internal issues that were going on within that state that led to the uh, kind of d- destruction of it overall. Uh, and so, but the, of course, those people didn't just quit. There's right. a lot of good people within those organizations.
1: And it's funny that you, I mean, of course, Clausewitz, right? It's it's fun how we can see the political and the contextual aspects of Clausewitz's writing fall of, into Belegarth now, mm. because you see those people transitioning over. And I think that was most evident uh, during Geddon this year when we hit, um, I think, 700 members or yeah. attendees uh and we Getting had a was lot huge
2: this year mm. a
1: large number of folks involved formerly with DAGA here and then with AmpGuard. so um we see an influx in crossbows we've seen so many crossbows this year that I've never seen that many before in the past um so there's some growing pains with adapting these um house rules and New weapons that, I mean, they're not new, but they're new to Belagarth or newer to Belagarth. So just kind of adapting and seeing how our field reacts to those, as well as the community themselves.
0: The Continuing conversation of red flails.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that one. I don't know about that one.
0: I got beamed so hard. One of the few dagger hair events I ever went to, I got beamed so hard by a red flail coming down 12 o'clock right on top of my head. Oh, man. And and that was one instance out of several that were very close in the same way. I was like, "There's no way this is safe. How are, how are they justifying this? Is being mean, anywhere near <laughs> or realistic?" I for that am matter. all
1: about new weapons, new weapon styles. I think somebody uh, on one of the archery pages asked about doing one of the slingshots using a slingshot instead oh, um, sure. to launch to launch arrows, hmm. and. Obviously, you can't put it on a national field without some rigorous testing beforehand. But it's not to say that I'm not that we're not open to these kinds of things, like red flails and uh, you know, pocket pocket crossbows and all these other fun fun doodads.
0: Hmm. Well, I might be an old man. Prove me wrong. Prove me if, if you can make a, a safe red flail. I will. Be, I'll be there for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's enough of that old guard. Prove me wrong. That. I think we still need it, knowing that safety and playability are our two...
2: Well, I'm open to being proven wrong. Yeah. Is is my thing. Exactly. Maybe with some of this newer tech, it could be light enough that if it does conk someone on the head, it won't be as bad. Yeah. That is definitely one thing that I can say about some of this newer tech, is with it being lighter, it's a lot easier to use and manage and so if things do go awry well first of all they don't go awry very often because Mm -hmm. you've got more control over a lighter weapon but if they do go awry it's not as impactful of a hit because it's a much lighter weapon sure sure
0: i don't got nothing wrong with crossbows uh, except that i think that they're ineffective I mean that's it. It's it's just a matter of like I would not take one because I have not had one used against me effectively.
1: Sure. Um, you see some pretty effective crossbow use out east yeah. actually. There's some good some good tactics. Um, Killian was one of my favorites at Geddon. He had he had the double holster and he wore his cowboy hat. So it was uh, very standing. much a John Wayne situation. <laughs> that was a lot of fun to see. Um, Wyatt Earp. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so seeing seeing Killian with the double crossbow, you know, it's kind of goofy. It's not the most effective fighting style. It's certainly not Killian at his most uh, boss level, but uh, it sure is a lot of fun. And, oh, sure. and you get the kills out there. So it's just about how you use the weapon and, and learning how to use it. And I think that's the next piece of this great migration is how do you learn the new rules? How do you um, acclimate yourself to a game that is different from the game that you came from? Or... If you're new, uh brand net new to Belagarth, how do you develop the skills that you need in order to reduce the amount of errors or uh one offs or twelve o'clocks that you're throwing and beating right. people with?
0: Well, I mean everybody struggles with twelve o'clocks. So, I mean even, even non red flail users, we all go through a period of uh our development where we're like, Yeah, I can get a shoulder shot by doing this motion and you know, after a certain amount of beaning you're like, Whoa,
2: that's not Maybe that's
0: not, an maybe that's
1: not working. Yeah. yeah.
2: One thing that I do enjoy about the direction the game has gone regarding that is folks are a lot more willing to help now than, say, when you and I started. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, when you and I started, it was very much um, figure it out on your own Mm -hmm. sort of thing. You know, you just get beaten down and just get told to get better. Mm -hmm. Now, if someone gets gets beat or someone sees, you know, someone who may be fairly obviously new or not doing something that they maybe shouldn't they're like hey would you be open to some advice you know i i, I can give you a few pointers and help you out and kind of you know help make you a little bit better if you're open to that sure
0: and i and i love that i love the fact that i mean Stygias transitioned that way too i mean we did a while ago with this idea of like hey if you want people to stick around maybe teach them the skills that they're going to need to want to stick around you know that was the core of the tuesday thursday
2: practices that i started years ago exactly yeah you yeah Precisely.
1: And I mean, the last word of our game is society. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times that goes by the wayside. We think of it as a wacky bats, buffer sports, that's it. But um, there is community behind it and collaboration. And it's that collaboration that continues to push us in the right direction of growth.
0: Absolutely. And there's been a lot of transitions throughout the years in Belegarf uh, that have made things better. And I mean, I again, same thing with the nature of war. There will be developments in weapons or developments in technology and tactics that change the way things work and, and hopefully improve. Uh, I hope we don't develop anything on the same scale as the nuclear weapon. Uh, that yeah. that scale of military science we should just, just avoid entirely. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, unless and it's unless it's upsetting Desi, then we already have our nuclear. Yeah, weapon, there are, and... it definitely <laughs>
1: exists a nuclear weapon, and uh, it's Desi. So. <laughs> Um Klauswitz talks a lot about motivation as well and and morale, and I think that's where community and collaboration comes into play is now we're starting to go we figured out the technical aspects of it for the most part industrialization, how to make better weapons Now we're moving on to how do we develop ourselves as a society as a community um and help boost and grow that morale so that we can continue to foster this game and wargaming in general
0: yeah no i i i love it absolutely love it. And that it also leads to a greater uh, diversity of, um, like the styles and the groups themselves. Like, yeah. you know, when you have new units popping up, new uh, like ways of approaching things, they can bring new life into the game rather than be like, okay, we have these established units. These ones are generally better than these ones, and it kind of stays the same. But right. You bring in that new blood, who's like, hey, we're gonna do different things and, and infuse different parts of it. Oh, you got a massive upset in the power of the uh, the power dispersal of things. And so that's exciting, to yeah. Me as well,
1: there's a group that's out of Columbus, Ohio, and they—I think they're maybe called the Cardinals, but they have a red bird, and I just love seeing them come out. They're all college age students, mm-hmm. um, and they just have such a good time. It's so refreshing to see that passion that we had way back when we started. Well, you guys started a little before I started, but <laughs> even back when I started, that was—we were just a bunch of goofy kids coming out and beating each other with sticks. Mm-hmm. And having the time of our lives. And just to see the rebirth of that in a new generation of fighters has been so fulfilling and exciting.
2: It is very refreshing to, to be able to see that. Someone come out and they don't they don't care how well they do. They're just having a good time.
0: And we actually have a nice, like well established sister realm in Kalispell now.
2: I heard about that. It's very exciting. I so
0: happy. These squeaky new fighters are just, they're so motivated. And, and they're the proper kind of motivated where they are receptive to information. I know when I first started, I knew better than everyone for <laughs> the first several years. I didn't, actually. But I thought I did. I was like, I've watched war movies and read books. I certainly know what I'm doing. And then after all, my friends started getting way better than me. I was like, maybe I should ask. How to do better? Yeah,
1: <laughs> watching Lord of the Rings uh 18 million times over hasn't seemed to improve my fighting. Didn't do it. No. Didn't do it.
0: But these these guys My
1: guard making, however, that, like we
0: uh, keep doing invasions uh, back and forth and everything, and these guys are just soaking
1: everything
0: up. They just they want to learn everything they have, and so I, I, yeah, it's like you said, it's awesome to see it's, that. Yeah, that
1: very refreshing. Enthusiasm. That's another thing I'd like to see continue, even with the veteran fighters that are coming from different games from uh, in this great migration. Right, is the receptiveness to um, understanding that, you know, maybe I come from a different rule set and I'm not quite understanding. I've seen so much of that, and people stopping on the field to say, oh, wait, before I do this, is this legal? Our, uh, in here we do XYZ, or in AmpGuard, we do XYZ. How does that reflect in Bellegarth? Um And communicating with Heralds, it's just, it's so refreshing to see the attitude that, um, that some of these fighters are bringing over, and even the new ones bringing into the game.
0: How's the magic switch transition working?
1: I've not seen... Well, it's tough. It's tough. I've not seen too much trouble with it. Um, I think we've all just kind of understood and sucked it up that we know that sometimes there's going to be some issues with the magic switch. Um,
0: Because we do it in Bell, I guess that's perfectly legal for what we do. Yeah, I've never heard any upset about the magic switch. But I know in Dagger here, when I went and, and did my couple events in Dagger here, they were very, it's part of their rule set that there is sure. some magic switch. So you have to drop it and like have it go to the ground and then be able to, to So have far, it,
1: again. it seemed that um, mostly the folks that are heralding are still that old guard of bell fighters. So um, some of our veterans are really stepping up to ensure that we're playing a safe game, a sure. safe and fair game. Um, so I think in that sense, the magic switch is not really our biggest issue at this point. Um, what would be our biggest issue right now?
2: Uh, that's kind of hard. This is a tough down. question. I think mean, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that's...
1: of just little ones, little variations that are kind of... Adjustments. Adjustments, yeah. yeah.
2: You know, I, I think I actually said this, um, last February at Wolfpack Opener, but I, I still feel like one of our biggest issues is heralding. Not so much, we need more people to do it, um... Folks are not very receptive to heralds all that much anymore. I still see it nowadays where heralds are afraid to call someone out or call anything that they see wrong because they're afraid the person is going to turn on them and bite their head off. Mm. And I, I feel like the community in general needs to do a little bit better about being respectful to our heralds. Sure. You know, we're not... The, the heralds are not out there to ruin your good time. Right. They are not there to pick on someone. Um, yeah, they're not there to, to pick on anyone. Um, they're just there to make sure that everyone's following the rules, everyone's being safe. Perfect.
0: That's what, that's what we need. Right? That's like our referees, and the whole point of a referee is to make sure that everybody's staying safe. Uh, I know that, again, I've, we again the grass, Great Grass Sea. Over here in the West, there has been an uptick in aggressive... Heralding. Well, not aggressive heralding, but active Assertive heralding. and active, yeah. yeah. And, and receptivity to it. And so I think that that is hopefully spreading as well because it's something that's needed. And I know that here it was a response to, okay, because the heralds have become somewhat more meek for a while, that was an uptick of cheating. And nobody likes cheating, and mm-hmm. so more active heralding keeps that from being an issue at all.
1: I think that better clarification and understanding of the rules as well because I've met so many folks who don't think that heralds are able to call shots and mm. they're not they're meant to referee. They're meant to just, you know, count the number of deaths or this denote, indicates a sideline and uh, you cross the line and you're dead. Um, but realistically, our rule set does say that heralds are there to maintain the rules, maintain yeah. and enforce. So I think as soon as people understand that they're not talking to you because they've got a vendetta with you, or they see a symbol on your your kit or shield or something, and they say, I'm going to go mess up that person's day. Right, right. But just for the betterment of the field as a whole, and once people kind of start to digest that and and live with that, I think as a whole heralding will be easier and um, better in general quality.
0: I suppose when I say referee, I'm thinking of like English Premier League uh, uh, referees who are like, nope, you did something wrong, yellow card. And I like calling people out. Exactly. Constantly. Oh. I honestly think, like, I've pitched it before and not been, like, not have receptivity, but I think we should incorporate a card system. You like, said
1: that, you said the yellow card, and now I'm, uh, now my brain's whirring around. I'm, I'm very excited because, about yeah, that. Because,
0: yeah, it's, it's you, you do the yellow card, you call out the foul, you write the person's name on it, they have their yellow card. If you get two yellow cards, it's a red card, you're off the field.
1: And, uh, you and I talked about, um, some of the Stygian bylaws that you guys have, which allow you to remove people who have multiple strikes against them, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of unsportsmanlike behavior. And I think that's another thing, just unsportsmanlike behavior in general, um, whether it's bullying or hitting too hard, too, too, too hard. On purpose to hurt somebody. Exactly. Very, got to be careful with that description, um.
0: No, I'm, I'm right there with you. There's, we were walking that fine balancing line between wanting to be welcoming and receptive to, to everybody and make sure that it's a, a place for everyone, but also trying to police that environment and make sure that the people who are coming in or who are already there are conducive to that environment and are, are not leading for it to be toxic. Because sure. there's, there's so many areas of our world right now that are, that are stressful and toxic it'd be really nice to be able to go camping with our friends and play wacky bats and have it not be a toxic
1: invite. you know <laughs> yeah. yeah have my hobby actually be enjoyable my yeah. recreation be recreational
0: precisely and you know we've talked about it before with volunteerism too like if everybody just puts forth a little bit of help a little bit of effort it it can go a whole long way just one shift at an event you know
1: i really think that we're getting better at volunteering and i you know we weren't at fest this year and fest is usually a pretty good indicator of um how volunteering is so I, I'd like to hear more about how volunteering was from there but so far it really does seem like people are on the up and up as in terms of um, more volunteering and adding shifts and support of the community
2: yeah I'm seeing a lot more people step up and just wanting to help like they're chomping at the bit to step up and help at an event which you know I'm, I'm thinking like 10-15 years ago at an event where they're practically begging people to come and volunteer And we're almost at a point where it's like, we might have too many people here to help.
0: Well, the last Tennessee event I went to, the last Beltane I was at, they were having to turn people away because people were coming up to me like, what can I do? And they were like, we're saturated on Heralds. We're saturated on Kitchen. We're saturated on uh, garbage pickup. I mean, like, we literally do not have a place for you. And that is so much better of a quote-unquote problem to have exactly. than having to conscript people from the field, you know.
1: So thank you, Bellagarth. If you are volunteering, we thank you. And if you're not, you do it. there's always more events for right. you to volunteer at.
0: And the worst thing that can happen is you go up and they say, we're full. And you're like, okay, cool. I will go back to my camp.
1: Go mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. back to the field or wherever. No, it's it's great. Well, guys, I think we're just about out of time, but I do appreciate you being back on the show.
1: Absolutely, yeah,
2: we, we, we love being here. <laughs> we, we always try to talk at the same time.
0: I'm I'm married. I totally get it. We have to not talk like one of us has to be the designated talker at a restaurant. Otherwise, why we're the beast with two heads? That's literally saying the same thing in <laughs> the same, same cadence, time. but from two different angles. And so you'll watch the waitress or the waiter just be like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> which head do I look at?"
1: Okay. I'm normally the designated talker. I'm normally the talks too much. So um, I'll, I'll just say that we love coming out and seeing you <laughs> and uh, always love to join you on the, on the call.
0: Perfect. Well, uh, best of luck to you guys in the future and we'll have you on soon, I hope.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: <laughs> Sorry. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of war gaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Verm network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's e a r v v y r m you can also find that in the show notes but for now this has been yaga malark signing off